Welcome to Words of Wisdom. On this podcast, we interview some of the most influential people in the world to uncover how they became the best so that we can help you understand how you can become the best. What's up, everybody? Grant Weiss here. Welcome to Words of Wisdom. I am really excited for today's interview. I've got Mr. Brad Jensen. He is the sober bodybuilder has an amazing story and I can almost guarantee is going to be an insightful one. Uh, so Brad, thanks for joining the show. Right on, the man. Thank you for having me. Honored to be here. Um, and I'm looking forward to it. So let's dive in and tell us your story. Well, um, I used to use drugs. Now I don't. Now I own a business. I'm just kidding. It's a lot more. Than- <laughs> <laughs> I literally heard one guy who I know has like an impactful story say that one time. I'm like, come on, dude. Um, <laughs> You know, I um, said, so I own a company called Key Nutrition, which is also the uh, the, late, the name of the podcast, the Key Nutrition Podcast. And, uh, you know, we've been we've been fortunate to um, to have some great success. And we're going on uh, year five now of, of the business. And the, the podcast has, uh, has had great success. We're on episode 250 now. Um, started as a little passion project and was like, this could be fun. And no expectations. And then it grew and grew. And, you know, we trend well on the nutrition charts and Apple and, and these different things and, and uh, coming up on a million downloads, which is really gratifying. But it wasn't always like that for me. Like, I, I think some people, you know, see where my life's at today. And it took a lot of work and um, a lot of trust in, in what I choose to call God. And I'm, I'm not a religious man. I'm just going to make that like, but, uh, you know, this part of my story you know, it wasn't, it wasn't always like this for me. And I'm going to take you back. Um, you know, I, I think I came out of the womb, like restless and irritable and discontent. Like, I mean that, like, I think if I could have talked, I make a joke, but I'm actually kind of serious. I think I would have asked my mom for a Xanax, like right out of the womb. I was just like, I don't want to be here. I felt really uncomfortable. I felt really uncomfortable as a kid. And I was, um, I was overweight. You know, I look back and I thought I was the fattest kid alive looking back at pictures, like I found some the other day and I post them on my Instagram story. I mean, I definitely was a little round, you know, but I was that, that typical 11, 12 year old who hasn't hit puberty, hasn't hit a growth spurt. And the problem was the friends I hung out with were rail thin, you know, and, and we thought they, I thought they had abs, right? I'm like, so that was, turns out it was the rib cage. Go figure. <laughs> like, you know, you know, the kids with the fast metabolism, then there's me. Yeah. So I was picked on by my friends a little. Now, now when I say picked on, there was people who who experienced like tormenting with bullies. It wasn't that. It was, you know, I, I ran around with like the cool kids, but I was always kind of the butt end of the joke. Like they were kind of making fun of me for being fat. And if there was leftover pizza, they would be like, oh, don't worry. Brad will eat that. He eats everything. And, you know, and that stuff got to me as a kid and I already felt really uncomfortable and, and, and I didn't know how to explain it 12, 13 years old. Hey, mom, I'm, I'm suffering from some anxiety. Can we talk about this? I just kind of like shut down. And uh, it was about the ripe age of 13 that I was offered alcohol for the first time. And I, and I grew up in a religious family. And, um, you know, my parents didn't drink and. I knew I knew I shouldn't be doing that at 13, but I did it. I did it. And when I did it, I remember I drank the Jack Daniels whiskey and it went down my throat. And I thought this, I I was like, why would any adult ever want to do this? This is the Mm -hmm. grossest thing I've ever tried. And about 20 minutes later, I was like, it all makes sense now. This is kind of (laughs) fun. And 
I, it was the first time I think, you know, in my life, I remember that feeling where I just finally kind of felt whole in my own body. Like I didn't have that anxiety. And, uh, you know, and that went on for a few years, um, kind of off and on, you know, I was young, but during that time, about 15, 16 years old, I got really into, uh, I, I was, it. I was, it. um, I'm going to tell the story quicker than I normally do. Cause I'll flash forward. I'll fa fast forward to the good stuff, but I was in a bookstore, which, um, back then that's where people had to go to like get books. This was 1997. Mm -hmm. So it was a Barnes and Noble and, uh, my mom was up getting some books or something and I was in the magazine section waiting for, and I saw like a muscle and fitness magazine. And I looked at the cover of the guy and I said, I mean, this guy was jacked, right? Veins everywhere. And I said, I want to look like that guy. It made no sense to me because I was kind of a, a chubby 14, 15 year old kid. I never lifted weights, but I picked up the magazine. I started to read it and I was just enthralled. It was the first time in my life I'd ever been passionate about anything. Like I was just like, oh man, look. And then they have like a diet plan in here i mean the diet plan was probably for like a bikini competitor girl i mean like i i don't remember all i remember is uh i made my mom drive to the grocery store after and we got canned tuna fish because that was on this meal plan that i had found in this magazine the funniest part is my mom actually reminded me i had forgot about this uh she reminded me after she listened to one of the podcasts guest prints i did i i stole the page i ripped it out so when we got to the grocery store, I flipped it open. She said, you can't just tear a page out of a magazine. I'm like, well, I didn't, I didn't have money to buy it. And she's like, well, what do you need off there? And it was like brown rice and tuna and avocado and egg whites. And so I started to do it because I believed I was going to look like the guy in the, the magazine um, any day now. And that didn't happen. But what did happen is I started to lose weight. And um, I also hit a growth spurt during this time. And as soon as I got my license, when I turned 16, the first thing I did was I got a gym pass. And through that exploration, what I found out was, I remember reading an article about how, how bad alcohol is for building muscle. And I don't remember exactly what was said in the article, but how I interpreted it as a 16 year old kid is, if I drink, I will never have biceps, so I cannot drink. So I just quit cold turkey. I told my buddies, I'm not partying anymore. Nope. And I dove into fitness. That was my life. And um, I would I would go to school and I'd get off of school and I'd go to the gym for three hours. I wouldn't lift the whole time, but I just I was the annoying kid talking to all the older big guys. I was like, what are you doing? Why'd you do that lift? I was just fascinated by it. And so, um, you know, I ended up completely transforming my body. I mean, to the point where, you know, the hottest girl in school who had no idea I existed as a sophomore my junior year. She like wanted to date me, um, you know. I put on all this muscle over the summer. I'd hit this growth spurt and, uh, and I was kind of popular and it was funny because I still felt like kind of like on the outside looking in and it's the best way I can describe it is I just kind of felt like I was watching everything unfold because I still had this like twinge of anxiety and restlessness. And, and, um, I didn't know how to explain that. I thought, oh, if I could get the body and I stopped getting teased, of course I'm going to feel better. And, and it didn't work that way. So later on, um, you know, in my high school years, it was uh, presented to me with some, with some pain pills. Now, the first time they were offered to me, uh, this is how naive I was. I, I told the guy, I said, oh, no, I'm not in any pain. And he goes, no, 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 no. They'll make you feel like you're drunk, but you'll have no hangover. And they don't do anything bad to your muscle. So I was like, okay. I took them and uh, man, when those things hit me, 
I, and I remember I was in this this house party. I remember I was in this kitchen. I remember what the cabinets looked like. Like I remember there was all these red cups because it was like a jungle juice party um, with like a kegger and and I remember they hit me. And I remember I looked at my buddy and I, I, it's crazy because I don't remember a ton from like these years. And I said, this is the feeling I want the rest of my life, man. This is amazing. And um, I loved it. And I chased that. And uh, it progressed real quick, real quick. Some of these older guys I've been talking to at the gym had uh, told me that you can go down to Mexico and you go to the pharmacies and you can buy all these pills and go through the border. And so I did that. I put my door, took my door panels off when I got to Mexico. Now, let me tell you, from Salt Lake City, Utah to Mexico was a 14-hour drive. It wasn't like it was four. It's not like mm-hmm. two. It's not like I live in San Diego. And it was like idiot savant because I had no idea the amount of federal felonies I was committing by, like, drug trafficking through, like, federal lines, you know. Mm-hmm. And I got away with it. And, um, and, I, and I did it a couple more times. And I never got caught. And what happened during that time is I started using these opiates every day Hmm. and I didn't realize what withdrawals were. I didn't realize what the insanity of the other side of drug addiction looked like. Now I was selling drugs and I make a joke, but I'm kind of serious too, that it was my first experience in entrepreneurship. I mean, I had like this notepad with like, you know, Brian owes me $20 and this person, then like (laughs) I would be, I was, you know, and I was selling them to other high school kids. And so these were kids who were doing them on the weekends when they, you know, wanted to party. And I wasn't dealing to drug addicts who were showing up at my house, pounding on my door at 2 a.m. needing their fix. So I'd heard people talk about these things called withdrawals or addiction. And but I was like, oh, no, I mean, that's not me, man. You know, but I was doing them almost every day. Well, pretty much every day. And uh, and that went on uh, for about the last half of my senior year of high school. And I was still really into fitness and, you know, my life, it was just fun. My life was fun at the time. And one, a kid I knew, his name was David. He got caught down there at the border doing the same thing I did. Cause I had told him it worked and they kept him in a Mexican prison. It was all over the news. And, and mm. uh, my mom was like, did you hear about that kid who got stuck in the prison? I was like, Oh, that's crazy. And I remember I was like, well, I can't go down there anymore. I'm too pretty to go to prison. I'm not going to a Mexican prison. <laughs> And uh, so I was like, well, I'll just, eh, all right, I'll just stop doing all this. The money was nice. And, but I just thought, okay, you know, whatever. I'm about to graduate high school. I should probably do something with my life. I'll just quit doing them. And, uh, and the day came that I ran out and uh, I was pretty sick. And then the second day I was sicker than I've ever been in my whole entire life. And by the third day I was, I was convulsing, withdrawing and, and vomiting. And, and uh, I remember hit me I said oh this is I I didn't honestly didn't quite understand how addicted I was physically to these and so um I thought I could just power through it and ended up with the wrong people wrong place wrong time I was sick I told the guy I was uh withdrawing from opiates and he offered me some heroin and I remember very distinctly in that moment it was uh it was a line in the sand I drawn like that you're a drug addict if you do heroin that's that's bad like, that's not okay. Hmm. And I said, no. And it took me all of about five minutes But when I finally was like, well, make me feel better. And he's like, instantly. And I'm like, give it to me. So I shot up heroin for the first time as, uh, as an 18-year-old kid almost graduating high school. Now, I remember that guy looked at me 
and uh bless you know bless his heart he's actually no longer with us he died from the disease of addiction but he said man i'm I'm sorry kid your life's never going to be the same and i didn't really understand what that meant but i knew he didn't he wasn't saying it in a good way and so um so i chased that um you know uh it got it got progressively pretty it, it got progressively worse it got it got bad pretty quick um you know, I just don't know too many like successful like heroin addicts that are like, oh, yeah, I got a great business and what lovely wife who loves me to death. And oh, <laughs> by the way, I shoot heroin. You know, it just doesn't happen. And so, you know, I also was smart when I was in high school. I realized how bad I hated school. And so I was like, well, what I do love is fitness. So I got certified as a personal trainer before I even graduated high school. So I got my first job at Bally Total Fitness. Uh, out of high school and I was the youngest personal trainer they'd ever hired I was 18 years old and uh and I loved that job and I would uh I would do just enough heroin to go in and train and and real quickly man I got fired from that job because it was very apparent I was on drugs and uh and you know my parents had no idea what was going on and so when I made a call to my mom for the first time they knew I partied but they didn't know the extent and I said hey mom I gotta talk to you about something um got a problem she said what's going on honey and i said well i'm addicted to heroin and it was like a solid 60 to 90 second just pause <clears throat> i was like hello she had dropped the phone she was in shock and she said what what and so you know they did did what they want they got me into a a nice treatment center i mean this place was beautiful and i i went to treatment and and uh thought okay uh, this is it for me like i'm done and uh, but when I got to treatment, I was like, well, I'm a drug addict, but I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not even legal age to drink yet. So my plan was I was going to get out of rehab and start occasionally drinking because I had learned a little more that while alcohol was not good for your results, it wasn't the end all be all. And I got out of rehab and uh, immediately start drinking and within three days was blacking out and within a week was back to the heroin. And I did this cycle over and over and over from 2003 until I got sober, November 20th of 2012. Mm -hmm. And during that time, I had 17 bookings into the county jail. Um, did about 18 months total, like three months here, four months there, two months here, and then finally a year. I went to six or seven different treatment centers. I was trying to keep track. Uh, I, I can't keep track now. It was a lot, six, seven, maybe eight. And it was the same cycle. Uh, I would get just enough uh, time. And I see this with my clients over the years. I see this with with even people I help with, with business mentoring now. Like, it gets good enough. And so you just rest on your laurels. And you're like, ah, this is fine. This is fine. Yeah. And then, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, I got to go see my, you know, my buddy Chris. You know, yeah, he parties and does drugs. But he's my friend since we were young. I'm going to go to his birthday party. And then the next thing you know, I'm loaded. And this cycle just continued and continued and um and it got bad you know there was uh there was moments of of reprieve followed by a still worse relapse like it would just it literally got worse never better every time i would relapse after three months or four months or two months or five months it's like i picked up right where i left off and um in the last time and then we kind of finish the story and we can pivot but uh you know the last time um when I got out of jail on January, I'd just done a year in jail and I got out January 27th to 2012. Now my birthday is January 31st. My parents were so excited for me to just for once show up to my, show up to my birthday party. 
A, just show up, but B, show up sober. It had been six or seven years where I'd either showed up high to my own birthday party and everyone knew or not showed up at all. They were so excited. And so was I because I hadn't been clean, heavy, heavy air quotes, at it that long, which was about nine months in since I started using drugs. So I thought, okay, this is it for me. Now, there's a big difference between clean and being in recovery. Like, I wasn't actually doing any work. In fact, I was doing the same shit in jail. I was bartering people. I was gambling. I was getting in fights. I just didn't have access to drugs, so I was clean. And I got out, and uh, the craving came back, and it hit me so hard. And it was in that moment I realized, like, when they talked about addiction being a disease of the brain, it made sense to me because I hadn't physically done drugs in nine months, and that craving came back. And I remember my palms started sweating. And instantly you got that stomach ache, like that gut pit in your gut. And I was like, oh. I said, I'm call the dealer. There's no way this guy still has the same number. No way. And sure as shit, this guy picked up. I'm like, crackheads always change their number. I thought for sure he'd have a different number by now. And he says where to meet him. And I hopped in my car and I'm driving downtown. And the whole way I'm driving, man, I'm just bawling because all the shit they told me in rehab, like play the tape through, you know, once you start, like once too many, a thousand, never enough. Like I did all that. I actually played the tape through and I go, you're going to start and you're not going to stop till something makes you stop. Don't do this. And I did it. And I was crying. And I remember I got down there and he's like, are you been crying? I'm like, no, no. <laughs> and I got the drugs and either said and show up to my birthday party. And, uh, I didn't draw another sober breath from that day until my sobriety date of November 20th of that year. And why that is actually relevant is because my pattern was, as I kind of briefly displayed, I would go on, on bender. So I'd go like three, four months hard. And then something would intervene. My parents would send me to detox. My parents would send me to rehab. The cops would intervene because I was constantly on probation um, and, and put me in jail. So like something would stop me. Um, it would get really bad, but not quite bad enough. And then like something would intervene. And uh, my parents were done at that point. And they made the, they made the very, very hard, um, but such impactful decision to stop loving me to death. Literally, they were going to love me to death with their enabling. Mm. And so after so many years of me robbing them and stealing from them and going through torture, um, you know, mentally and emotionally, and they said, until you're sober, we can't talk to you. So good luck. We love you. We love you enough to like, you've got to find your own bottom. And they knew what that meant was possibly me dying. And so they cut me off. And that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, because I hit a new bottom. I tell people when I'm about to hit that bottom, my parents would just kindly put a little pillow underneath me. So I, I would hit the bottom, but it'd be like a little cushion. And it just got bad. And it was groundhogs. It was every day just kept going. And so that went on for what's a 10 months straight, almost 11, actually 11. Yeah. Just straight of chaos. Didn't draw a single sober breath and uh, got, you know, when I didn't have anywhere to go, I was homeless the whole year. I never slept on the streets, but I was homeless the whole year. I was very resourceful, but I was staying in very, very, very questionable places with very, very questionable people. And, um, and had to, had to do some bad things to get my fix every day. And, and, uh, you know, I'm not proud of those, but today, like I've worked through any of that guilt and shame around it. And it, it, uh, I saw some really, really gnarly things that I, that I, you know, that, I, that I wish I never saw and did things, but, um, 
you know, I, I finally got to the end of that year and it was by this point, it's November again, it's Utah and it's cold. And, um, you know, I had, uh, I had, I'd worked up just enough money to, I'd stay in these really low end motels and hotels. And, and I got a call from my mother and she said, Hey, um, your grandpa died. And I, and, you know, and, and of course, like I was sad and she just said, you know, the funerals this date, it was a few days from then. And she just said, please, um, I want you to show up. And I said, I want to be there too. Um, and she said, just do whatever you have to do to be right. And she knew what that meant. What that meant, she knew I was a heroin addict. What that meant was, please don't be too high that you're drooling on yourself and please don't be sick. So of course that morning came and I ran out of the drugs. So, but I, I, I had this burning desire to just, just show up. So I said, okay, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go anyway. And my mother picks me up and uh, I hop in the car and I'm trying to just tough it out till I can get back home. And we're about 10 minutes into the drive and I'm vomiting on her car and I'm shaking and I'm shivering and, and literally vomited in her car. And she was like crying. She's like, you, what do we need to do? You can't go like this. And I said, so I made my mom stop at the drug dealer's house. You know, this good little religious lady driving to the drug dealer's house. Then to add insult to injury, when we got there, I said, I need 20 bucks. So she gave me 20 bucks. And by this point we had backtracked so much. We were going to be late. We were going to miss the first part of the funeral. So she said, she said, get in the back seat. She said, do whatever you have to do. Um, like, we just got to get up there. So she's going up the highway. And so I proceeded to get in the back seat of my mom's car. And this was kind of the defining moment for me. My mom knew I did drugs. My mom knew I was a heroin addict, but my mother had never physically watched me do drugs. And, uh, and I, and I loaded up my spoon and syringe and, and I, and I, I did what you have to you cook up the heroin and, and I pull it into the needle and she's watching the whole time as her son, who's, I'm 40 pounds underweight. I've got jet black hair for some reason. I decided to dye it one night, but my eyebrows were blonde. It was the weirdest thing. She's watching me try to find a vein because they had all been collapsed. Like I just beat them all to death from intravenous drug use. And she watches me do this and tears are just rolling down her face. And she's not even wiping them off and she's not saying a word, but her eyes are dead set on looking at me in the rearview mirror. And I keep catching glimpses of them. And I finally, and, and, I, and I do the heroin. And of course, immediately I felt relief, but I couldn't, I couldn't numb the pain of like what I was, what I was and who I had become. Mm -hmm. And I looked at my mother and she's just crying and she doesn't say a word. She just shakes her head. And she just keeps driving. She didn't say another word the whole car ride. As I sat in that back seat, you know, I, I thought to myself very clearly, I said, you have two options right now, dude. And I'd never actually been suicidal on the streets, which was really interesting because a lot of people, I was suicidal when I was out of drugs, but actually on drugs, I was not suicidal. And I thought you either need to kill yourself or you need to get sober. Going on another day like that was not an option. You know, I mean, during those years, I had built success in certain areas and got a condo and lost it. Like there was a lot of crap. Like it wasn't just, it was this slow demise over the years that kept getting worse. And, and I finally was like, you're a homeless junkie who just shot heroin in the backseat of your mom's car, just so you can show up to a funeral. Like that is, that was the ultimate act of selfishness that I did that to my mother. And I was, I was pretty set on the first option that I just need to kill myself because when you've tried so much to get sober and it's failed, 
the belief that you can do it is incredibly low. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, I just said, you know, all right, well, maybe I need to kill myself. And, uh, you know, that night, uh, I actually prayed. I didn't even know what I was praying to for the first time in years. And, uh, I got in a car later that night to, to go pick up some drugs and the car was stolen. And to this day, you know, I didn't know it was stolen. And for me, that was a higher power doing for me what I couldn't do for myself mm -hmm. because we were pulled over pretty quick. And when we got pulled over, the guy informed me because he asked me to drive. And I know why he asked me to drive now is because the car was stolen. And uh, he said, hey, man, this car's stolen. And I remember there was this moment where I'm like, maybe I just go on a high speed chase. I mean, it was like a 1998 Hyundai Elantra. Like I wouldn't have gotten <laughs> far. <laughs> but I, uh, it was this moment of surrender. I just pulled off the freeway and, uh, you know, the cop came up and he said, you know what, why I pulled you over? I said, yes, this car is stolen. I don't have a license. I'm high. You should probably take me to jail. And this guy was like, whoa, whoa, hold on. And then he like, he goes, yeah, I guess you're right. Let's go. So he took me to jail and that's where my journey began. And, uh, you know, I, I got in there and I detoxed and it was the most hellacious detox of my whole entire life. And I shook and I shivered. And, and I remember laying on the cement floor in the jail and a puddle of my own vomit. But I remember just thinking, all it kept playing through my head was this is the last time you have to do this. This is the last time you have to do this. This is the last time you have to do this. And so, uh, so I got out of jail, uh, 30 short days later, I thought I would be there for quite a while. And, um, the charges were dropped. It was, he stole it from a family member. They dropped the charges, got out of jail and, uh, and had my mom pick me up and she wouldn't let me come home. She dropped me off for a recovery meeting, uh, like an AA meeting. And that's where my journey began. It was the first time, like that decision to go left instead of right. When I walked down, they had this ramp at the county jail here and it walks down and I always had like my drug friends pick me up, but instead mm -hmm. I called my mom and, uh, and she took me to a recovery meeting, man. And that's where it began. And that was, uh, December 20th, um, of, of 2012. And, uh, and so I'm still here today, uh, with that much continuous sobriety from all mind altering substances. Funny people be like, well, do you drink? I'm like, no, no, like I'm sober. Oh, okay. <laughs> you, uh, do you smoke weed? I'm like, no, no, sober. <laughs> like, like yeah, not, nothing. not like California sober, like where Demi Lovato <laughs> smoked weed, but, um, and yeah, man. And it's been, it's been a trip. So uh, that was a really, I didn't even give you a chance to talk there. So sorry. Uh, dude, no, it's, it's, it's okay. I mean, I could imagine that the lessons from a, a life like that, especially, you know, for you, the first half is just absolutely profound. But one of the questions I have is, uh, how, like, how did you pull yourself out of what felt like just maybe inevitable doom and to rebuild your mindset and rebuild your body and rebuild your spirit? And I mean, just how did you rebuild through that process? Yeah, man, you know, so, you know, how I got sober, and it's not the only way to get sober was is through like, um, you know, AA rooms and, and the, you know, they have I think called the 12 steps. And in those 12 steps, it's really kind of about, you know, trusting God, cleaning house and helping others. And, um, and so, you know, I, I talk about, uh, you know, you know, I, anytime I've picked up like a recovery chip after you, you know, you get certain birthdays and I always say, you know, my, my sobriety day is November 20th, 2012. And I think that says far more about God than it does me. And, um, that's my experience. And I used to be like, you know, I, I know some, maybe some people don't believe in God and I'm like, I don't really care. Like, like whatever God is to you, uh, might be different to me, but, that is for sure there was something greater than me guiding me because I started like I had to deploy a lot of mental grit too. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, that first yeah. three or six months, 
was not fun. It was a lot of cravings. There was a lot of, um, you know, I mean, you're at the bottom, get out of jail and I've got a garbage sack with one pair of clothes in it. Literally not even a backpack, a garbage bag. Like I had nothing. And so you start from zero and there's a lot of hard moments in there. I started waiting tables and, um, and then I got an opportunity to get back in the fitness industry and it just was like one chip at a time, but for sure, like understanding there was a spiritual being guiding me and like relying upon that was huge. And then surrounding myself with like-minded people was mm -hmm. so important. I remember this guy came up to me after a meeting and he was like, you knew? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, awesome. He's got this, he's on a Harley and he's got this long hair. And he goes, well, the good thing is uh, there's only one thing you got to change, kid. And I'm like, oh, sweet. Only one? He goes, yeah, that's everything. Good luck. And he patted me on the shoulder <laughs> and walked away. Uh, <laughs> you know, I truly believe that you're the the, the average of the, the, uh, the five people you spend the most time with, right? Yeah, yeah. And so... I surrounded myself with, with like-minded people. And, and what I did was I'd go to these recovery meetings because I didn't have any like normal friends that just like lived normal lives yet. I met a lot over, you know, over the coming years. So I found people in recovery meetings that were not only just sober, but seemed happy and were building something with their life. Cause there's a lot of people in recovery meetings that are sober 10 years, but I'm like, they're not really a, aspiring for much so mm -hmm. I, I sought out these people and um you know so when to answer your question i guess in a little more of a direct format it was uh, a spiritual connection to a, a god of my own understanding like letting something out like people some people find that through prayer meditation a religion i don't care how you find it but there was a greater purpose guiding me i could feel mm -hmm. that and, and the second thing was i uh, i surrounded myself with the right people like I cut out all the toxic people from my life and I surrounded myself with all new people. And that was hard to like basically walk up and be like, Hey, I want to be your friend. Like, you know, mm -hmm. I didn't say it like that, but right. Yeah. Um, I took a lot of risks by, you know, kind of putting myself in like, Hey man, I really respect what you do. And I mean, I just look up to you and dude, I, can I get your number? Like, it was like asking a girl out. It was like this weird <laughs> concept to me, like try to make new friends. And so surrounding myself with like-minded people who were aspiring for more and who were also living a clean and sober life. And then getting back into, um, getting back into fitness was also really key for me because I had been out of it for probably the better part of two or three years prior to that, especially the last year. And, um, and, you know, and, and I read a lot and I watched less TV and I read a lot and I got really into a morning routine and gratitude journaling and all the shit I still do today, you know. How protective are you now of your energy? Like, I would imagine that, you know, wanting to be protective of what goes in and what goes out is maybe crucial. I know for me, it's, it's like everything. I'm super protective, almost to a fault of what I will allow and what I will not allow. <laughs> and sometimes even... Uh, my wife, which obviously is why we're doing the podcast, she's like, uh, eh, like what's the hell's going on? But <laughs> I'm super protective of what goes in, what goes out. I mean, how important has that been, if at all, for you? Oh, dude, everything. And let me tell you that it um, much more today that in the beginning I was, but I didn't really, I was very protective over my sobriety like I, I almost to a fault like at some point i remember i was probably three years sober this this guy who who would help me a lot in a who had a lot more time than me was like uh, dude so like 
you, there's times you're going to be around alcohol. Like you've got enough sobriety. You can't just be like, nope, not going there because they're having a beer at the Super Bowl party. Like we got sober to live life. And so, you know, and, and it was really, I went through this phase probably, let me just say this, the last year and a half, I had some things happen in my personal life and I really realized, you know, I'd gotten kind of screwed by, by somebody I considered a friend in a business deal. And, and I realized that I'd gotten really lax on protecting my energy because my gut feeling mm -hmm. told me to keep this guy afar and I didn't. And it was really when I buckled back down and today it's much more, it's not, I, you know, I, I don't care if, you know, I go to a party and they're drinking alcohol. I don't go to parties where they're doing cocaine. That's not like really my scene, but I can be around alcohol. I don't have to be like overly protective about that, but I'm very protective of my energy today. And, and you know, I would even, I've had people tell me to a fault. I just, I went, I unfollowed 500 people recently. Well, probably like six months ago or eight months ago on Instagram. And it was the most freeing thing. I'm like, don't like you can't stand your energy gone. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 and that's not even like my close but like to be in my close circle um you know I, i'm very protective over my energy because it will I, I truly believe that i see how many toxic relationships and toxic friendships mm -hmm. simply and they get in the way of my clients results even when we're talking health and fitness goals yeah like it is, I just won't deal with it today. I'm not going to deal with it. I'm not going to deal with the energy. I'm very protective of my energy. And I've done a lot of work over the last year, spiritually and emotionally, um, to kind of even level up more. And through that process, I've realized how just important it is to protect that energy field and, and what I'm seeing, what, what I'm, I'm listening to, who I'm watching, all of that. I think it's fascinating how you will elevate to the standard of the people that you surround yourself with. And then as well, you will lower your standard to relate to the people you surround yourself with. And mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it's so incredible that it almost happens just as a natural byproduct of your interactions with the people you put yourself in with, the people you're talking to most, the people that, you know, you're, you're following and interacting with most. It's, it's insane how the mind will just naturally kind of like a thermostat uh, regulate itself to what it, your surroundings are. And, uh, I mean, it's just, it's insane. I know it's been insane to experience, but <laughs> I've seen that, you know, at least in myself, as I've very intentionally, very consciously focused on what I, who I surround myself with matters, what I surround myself with matters, what I listen to matters, what I'm looking at matters. Um, it's, it's been pretty insane to just see as I've, uh, as I've done that, how, almost like it's takes no action at all. It's just almost as like a, a byproduct of those things. Life starts yeah. to change in one way or another. Did I just, I just, um, I hate the word fired. Uh, that's really abrasive. I let go of three clients um, mm -hmm. recently. And it it's crazy. Like you said, when you're doing the work, like all of a sudden it just kind of happens where I, they were dragging energy out of me, their negativity on the calls. And they'd been clients mm -hmm. for mine for way too long to not be getting results. And it was like a lot of bitching and explain, uh, over explaining and complaining and every call I would dread with them. And I've gotten to a point in my, my life where I'm just like, this isn't worth it to me. I don't care about mm -hmm. the money. Mm -hmm. And so I just was like, I'm going to let them go. I'm going to tell them, Hey, you can work with one of my assistant coaches. Um, or we can kind of set up a plan to, you know, get you back to maintenance and have you be done. And before that would have paralyzed me in fear because, wow, what if the people pleasing thing and like, well, 
but it's not that. I'm like, no, no, it's bad. It dragged like my next mm -hmm. like hour, two hours of my day after those calls, I am just not the same person. Like they drag it out of me. And so I love them, but I, I also don't want them sucking my energy field. So I, I let them go. <laughs> I love you, no judgment, but you're 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 gonna have to leave. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. You're gonna have to you're gonna have to get out of here. You energy vampires. I hope they're not listening, gosh. <laughs> so walk me through the process, man. What was it like? How did you you know take me through what it was for you to start trusting yourself again? Yeah, oof. It's a good question. Um, you know, it took it took me a while, and I and I think, you know there's always this misconception. I think that, that people severely lack patience in their life with, mm. when it comes to their results, when it comes to their, 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 you know, their transformation within their self with habit building. Like, I think that patience gets in the way of so much. And, um, for whatever reason, I was blessed with some patience this time just to be like, you know what, like it, it happened kind of slow and gradually, but, uh, I probably didn't start trusting myself fully honestly, until I was about four or five years sober. Now, let me like, it wasn't like for four years, I just had zero trust in myself. It was starting to build, but then I would make stupid decisions oftentimes with females or like these things, these a uh, uh, gambling, I got really into for a sec and, and uh, ob ob obsessively shopping. Like I just was trading addictions those first yeah. couple of years. And and every time I would do that, I would lose more trust in myself, you know, and I, and I remember I heard a quote that if you want to build self-esteem, you do esteemable acts and esteemable acts for others and esteemable acts for yourself. And esteemable acts for yourself for me was respecting like my own moral compass and my values. And, um, and little bit by little bit, I started doing that more. And today, mm -hmm. like I trust myself fully, but like this took years to fully get now, obviously it was getting incrementally better followed by like maybe a little setback, but then better again, or I wouldn't have kept going, but it took me years and, and, and it took really just making a shit ton of mistakes, like a shit ton of mistakes <laughs> to be like, okay, how can I learn from that? You know, there's not much I've done perfect in my recovery and there's far, there's far less things I've done perfect in, in business, but every time, make a mistake, you know, look at it as a learn. Like, I truly believe there's no winning, like, or losing, like, there's just learning. And any, anytime I would lose, I would try to really learn from that, you know, and I really adopted that Gary Vaynerchuk mentality of like, you know, trying to really embrace my losing my losses. And that's how I started to trust mm -hmm. myself more was like, okay, you screwed up again. What can we do better next time? Yeah. And a little bit by little bit, you know, started to trust myself more. And today, sometimes I still don't trust myself. But when I don't, I've surrounded myself whether it's in business or life or recovery or friendship or with so many people that I can pick up the phone and be like, I'm a little crossroads here. I'm not sure I'm yeah. trusting my gut instinct here. Can you, can you talk me through this? And that again, goes back to surround yourself with the right people. You surround yourself with the five people you spend the most time with are go-getters. They've got great advice. You know, they're sound human beings who have, you know, understand the best investment they can make is in themselves and um, becoming better humans. Dude, it's just like a cakewalk because I have so many people I can call. Mm -hmm. So I, I asked that question because you said you were, you know, in a business deal recently and you didn't trust your instinct. And it's one of the things that I uh I had wrestled with for a long time. It's like, man, my instincts, I think they're bad. Like I don't, I'm making all these horrible decisions. I don't know what the hell to do next to make this stuff better. And 
it took time. Like it just took time. It took really digging deep and just rewiring things. And, um, it's just, an, it's such an interesting process. No, it's so true. And you know, in that moment too, like, you know, your intuition is not in your head. That's your intellect. Your intuition mm. is in here. That's in your heart and your gut. And, and it was telling me this sounds a little good to, to be true. Like, and had I called and ran that by some people like I normally do, I think I would have probably gotten advice and maybe I still would have gone and done it because maybe I had to learn this lesson, but it was the ego that took over. And I was like, man, uh, it's going to be a lot of money if this works out. All right. Like, it's going to be really good. <laughs> and I got burned. And uh, it's funny. I called one of my buddies who's been a asylum business mentor to me who's had created way more success than me. And he started laughing. I'm like, why are you laughing? He was like, man, man, that, that's how we learn. That's a good learning lesson for you. That was an expensive lesson though, wasn't it? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, who'd you call and run this by? And I said, nobody. And he said, come on, man. Yeah. He said, what'd your gut tell you? And I'm like, you know what my gut told me? He's like, well, then he goes, I love you, but I don't feel bad for you. Uh, He's like, but you maybe you were supposed to learn this. So it's an interesting I concept. Just, I just call them um, whatever the price tag loss was. It's just a $5,000 lesson. It's just a, I was talking yeah. to somebody yesterday. It's just a million dollar lesson. It's just, a, <laughs> you know, it may have been expensive, but you know, you'll make it up uh, yep. at some point in time. One of my favorite books is uh, the road less stupid by Keith Cunningham. Mm. And it's all about, it's just a book filled with amazing questions to ask before you move forward, literally in anything. And getting in that habit of asking yourselves really good questions and the right questions, um, you know, it can really have a profound, fa uh, profound effect on, you know, whatever success it is you're trying to have, whether it's your health, your money, your relationships, you know, the list goes on. But what are some of your top today contributors to your success? Is it being rooted in what life was and I'm never going back there? Or is it looking ahead now to what life could be? What are some of your, you know, top top uh, contributors you know uh number one is is understanding the incredible importance of gratitude in my life like being truly grateful um, is this something you started practicing like intentionally or how tell me how you use gratitude because i i see people do it different ways you know so I was about six months sober and uh, I'd gotten back into to coaching at about month three or four. Um, I got a chance at a place and uh, and I was on a, uh, a FaceTime call with this this gal and she uh, I've been working with her probably two months at that point and maybe I'm six or seven months sober. Yeah, I had I had been doing the things they told me to do, which was like write three things you're grateful for. Now, I'm not mocking that. But like practicing gratitude and being grateful are two different things. The practicing gratitude can get you to a place of learning to be truly grateful. But I was very much in the practice phase. Like I was just like, I am grateful for the sun and I'm grateful for my surprise. Like, and, and it was, listen, that's way better than nothing. Like I'm not mocking that, but I was just kind of going through the motions. And, and that was the start. That's all it takes. And this gal looked at me at the end of our call and she starts welting up in her eyes and she's crying. And she said, Brad, you have helped me so much more than you even know. Like my marriage is better because I'm feeling better about me. And she goes, my relationship with food is better. And she's crying. And then I get teary eyed. And at that point, like, I didn't think it was okay to cry. Cause it definitely wasn't okay to cry on the streets. Like you didn't show, like, I didn't cry. 
Even when I was sad, I didn't cry. Even when I was scared, I didn't cry. And I kind of started getting teary-eyed and, and we hung up the call and I just started crying. And I was so happy. It was the feeling that I had been chasing for in a needle and a pill bottle and in an alcohol bottle my whole life. And I, I got in the car, my little piece of crap, two-door car. There was really a one door because the passenger side was welded shut. So girls would have to like hop. It was a real disaster, but it was my, that was my start. And I'm playing some Demi Lovato song, or I don't even know. So I have some cheesy song. The top of my lungs, I'm singing. I remember thinking, holy shit, this is what gratitude feels like. And it was the first time, sadly, in my whole entire life at 28 years old that I had felt grateful. And I remember I was like, this has to be what gratitude feels like. Like, I am so on fire just happy to be sober i'm i'm making an impact in these people's lives and they're paying me it was just like mind blown and it was that moment that i remember i'm like i don't know if i can achieve this every day but i'm gonna work every day to get this feeling again and and i was right i don't feel that gratitude every day but i know like that was the turning point for me and from there my gratitude practice has deepened i started getting more into like writing about one thing i'm grateful for and like Sometimes it'd go two pages and really trying to find the gratitude in each moment, in each day and the gratitude in the lessons. That's how I started to embrace my losses. But I found the gratitude. I'm like, okay, that was a like really expensive mistake there. But you know what? Like, I'm just grateful it wasn't more. I'm just grateful that he showed his true colors sooner rather than later. I'm grateful that I didn't get dragged along through the mud even longer because it was a pretty quick kind of rip off. I've never publicly even talked about the details and I don't know if I ever will, but um, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was a turning point for me. That's gratitude has hands down been one of the things that I try to stay rooted in no matter what. Oh, you're muted. I am sorry. That's like finding gratitude in the lessons. Can you walk us through that just a little bit deeper? Because that's such a profound thing to be able to do. Yeah, do do I mean, you mean like, how do I do it? For me, I, I, I went to a coach like a year, 12, 15 months ago. And I said, look, I, I'm getting ready to become very successful. <laughs> and it was kind of silly to say, but I was like, I'm so unbelievably confident in what's getting ready to unfold in my life. I was like, but I know if I don't get over this thing, whatever it is, I can feel it. I don't know what it is. I can't see it. I can't touch it. I can't feel it. But I know if I don't get through it, I'm, I'm going to squander whatever this new success is. And he sat me down. He's like, just look back at all of your past experiences. And he had me read a book. I can't remember it, but he had me start practicing this thing called duality. He said, I want you to look at all the worst things that have ever happened to you in your entire life and write out what they were, what the actions were and why they were bad. And then I want you to spend some time around really being intentional. What were the two or three good things that came from all those awful things that happened to you? And as I went through that exercise, I really, really, really became like grew to understand. I was like, man, all these things that happened sucked a lot. Like, I don't want to relive them. I don't want to have to learn that lesson the same way. They suck so bad, but man, it led to this and this and this and this and this. And for that, that's how I started to find gratitude in, you know, a lot of the awful stuff that I'd lived through and, and it changed my life forever. Now I can do it like in the, in a moment, I can go through a bad experience and just in a moment say, this could be bad. What happened? This is what could come from this, but this is also based on my life experience, what could 
good could come from it. And mm. you really just kind of learn to be level through all of life, the good and the, and the bad. And it's, it's an amazing how you can move and perform when you think like that. And so I just curious, like how you started to, to, to be grateful for it. You know what, a, a similar way is um, I, I started, you know, I found it very cathartic to put pen to paper during these situations and journal about these things. So I could kind of get my thoughts out and there's something that happens when I put that pen to the paper and I start writing. So I did that in a lot of things. And that was suggested to me by, you know, my sponsor in AA, which is like a, like a, like a free coach essentially through the whole thing. And then uh, I hired a business coach too, who really impressed that upon me. Um, when I first started key nutrition, I hired him and uh, you know, just like, just like kind of, kind of like you were saying, when you start doing that long enough, it gets to the point where when it happens, it almost becomes intuitive. And there's still times where I got to go pull out that journal and I got to write to kind of like see these lessons because I'm just pissed. Mm -hmm. And I know that being pissed at me, I, I don't, I hate being pissed off. Like it is the worst feeling. There's some people who love being pissed and angry. And I'm like, for what? <laughs> you be gone tomorrow. You be gone next minute. Like being pissed is the, oh, it's awful feeling. So when I get to that place, I still have to pull up, but it's become more intuitive where I'm going to be like, okay, this sucks. You know, when the guy ripped me off, I did have to put pen to paper and I mm -hmm. had to really, really try to find some lessons because I was just mad. And then I started finding, but you know, for most of the day-to-day -day stuff where it's like, dang, that sucks. That happened or whatever. I can usually in the spot be like, well, could have been worse. It could have been this. It could have been that. And quite frankly, like I'm grateful for this or this. So it came from like having to actually practice it. And now it happens more intuitive. Um, kind of like when people, you know, I'm working with them on tracking their food. I say, mm -hmm. I want you to track the food. It's your life. I want you to learn the, learn the skills so you can become more intuitive. You know, you start yeah. doing it organically. Like, right. It gets easier and easier. Cause like I could measure six ounces of water coming out of my fridge, like nobody's business now. Cause I've done it <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a yeah. million times <laughs> or right. just like, as an example, um, do you find that when you take responsibility for your life, even like the stuff that sucks, like the bad stuff that maybe just even happened to you that you didn't have any control over that helps you keep moving forward fast? Dude, I am, I am such, such an advocate for that. I am, I, I, again, like I'm, I'm incredibly rooted in Gary V and if you guys don't know, his name's Gary Vaynerchuk. He's an entrepreneur, but, uh, you know, so much of what he said. I mean, I, I consumed hours upon hours of his content when I first started key nutrition, cause I didn't know shit about a business. I just mm. knew, uh, I just knew I wanted to start one. That's it. <laughs> like I didn't know anything. And so, you know, and, and I got really rooted in that fact of like everything at the end of the day, especially as an entrepreneur, especially running a business with, with multiple employees is my fault. And, yeah. and, I, and I don't say that as a martyr statement. I take this as a responsibility statement. What could I have done a little better? And there's times where sometimes I'm like, no, it's definitely your fault too. But <laughs> what was my fault? You know, yeah. I am so big on responsibility that uh, literally I have a friend who is a great guy. Great guy. You know, we get along well. We've been friends for quite a while. And recently I've kind of put some distance in between. Again, it wasn't everything planned. It just happened organically because he's a victim it's this one thing he never takes responsibility it's mm. always somebody else's fault and that you want to talk about negative energy that just suck. i'm just like no man mm. own up and take responsibility for your life like literally 
it is is it's probably the one characteristic and trait that I look for in people that I surround myself with really closely yeah. in my life. That if you are a victim, victims never win. Like take responsibility. People who take responsibility are the ones who get shit done and who have success. They take responsibility for that. For, and, you know, I struggled for a while to take responsibility and pride in my wins, too, because I mm-hmm. didn't want to be, or, you know, uh, cocky or arrogant or narcissistic or, I, you know, I wanted to try to stay humble. But I started realizing, like, I got to take responsibility of my wins and my losses equally mm-hmm. and be like, yeah, absolutely. That worked. I'm really proud of myself. I put the systems in place. Super stoked to see it went well. Now let's mm-hmm. continue to have it go well. And uh, so that was actually harder for me because it was really ingrained in my recovery. Like you take responsibility. If you stop, if you start explaining and blaming and complaining and everything else is everyone else's fault, you will lose and you will get high. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't want to get high. So I just started taking responsibility. I, it's, it's fundamentally, I think what one of, if I looked at one of the characteristics and all the people in my life, I know the ones who have success and not, not just monetary success, but that too in their life and the ones who don't, that is one defining characteristic that separates the two. Without question. I couldn't agree more. Sometimes I'll, I'll move through things so fast. And my wife's like, well, what is it? Wait a second. You know, that guy screwed you over. This is messed up or that's messed up. It's like, it's not my fault, but it's my responsibility. I learned that lesson as cheesy as it sounds from Will Smith. Uh, I was listening to some speech that he gave and he was like, it may not be your fault that you were born this way or that, you know, your dad left or that you got hit by a car. He's like, but it is your responsibility to pick up the pieces and move on. Because if you don't, you could be stuck uh, for a long time. Who knows? And yep. uh, it's just such a powerful thing. How, how do you maintain? I know we're kind of running out of time. I don't respect your time. I just got a couple more questions. I probably could be on here another four or five hours asking you, <laughs> asking you some questions. So I'll try to limit it. But how do you maintain now? Like what, what goes into you maintaining a mindset because i you know you're nine years sober right that's you're nine years out today eight and, and a half eight and a half almost almost nine what goes into maintenance of you know keeping that top performer elite you know mindset that leadership mindset how do, how do you maintain it now um you know constantly continuing to evolve to never feel like i've arrived like I, um, you know, I, I try to not, I try to just stay pretty, pretty even keel as far as like any success or any losses. I try to stay pretty middle of the road, but you know, I, I, I truly believe this. If you're not evolving, you're slowly dying. Like mm-hmm. it, it, and it might not feel like that in the moment. Now, don't get me wrong. I've had moments of stagnation. Now the delusion is that I think they're stagnation, that I'm being stagnant. I'm actually going backwards. It might be slow, but I'm going backwards. I believe mm-hmm. you're not moving forwards. You're slowly going backwards. I don't believe there's anything as truly just neutral in life. I really don't. I believe you're either going forward or you're going back. And sometimes it's minuscule amounts, so you might not feel it. And I'm not saying you always have to be pushing the needle forward. I've learned the lesson the hard way that you can't just grit, 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 grit. Like I have grit tattooed on, on, I couldn't, on this, the, on my knuckles, like a degenerate. My mom was super happy about that, but um, I've grit tattooed on these and about, uh, about mm, probably six months ago, I got grace tattooed on these knuckles because I had to learn to give myself some grace because I was doing too much grit, too much grind, too much hustle. But I believe you got to constantly, like, I am always looking for small ways to level up inside myself and my business and to stay sober. The things I do to like keep that stable and running in my life, 
believe it or not, are the exact same things I did when I got sober. Now they look different. I was going to seven recovery meetings a week, one every day for that first year. I, I have one solid one that I do at my office and I, and I host it. I'm there every Tuesday without doubt, without I'm there. If I'm in town, I'm here. No doubt about it. So I go to one, not seven, but I, you know, I take other guys through the 12 steps. So I sponsor them. I always have at least one guy I'm working with. Um, I still pray, I still meditate. I still do some sort of morning routine. It's all the same stuff, but I think remaining incredibly open-minded is one of the mm -hmm. best lessons I have learned open-minded to new points of view, even when it comes to things that I feel very well versed in like nutrition and fitness, open-minded to new points of view in business, open-minded to new points of view in relationship, open-minded to new books to read, new podcasts to listen to. Like just always feeling like you're a student among students will keep you in the game. Mm. Man, that's truth. <laughs> that is so true. Being a, being a really great teacher is great, but being a really great student, uh, who was, I think it was Socrates on his deathbed said, the only thing I know is that I know nothing. Like, mm -hmm. you know, if you can continually live your life that way, just powerful. And there's so many great books on, you know, things like this, the power of broke by Damon John, you know, yep. constantly living like, you know, every day is zero because at the end of the day it really is like every day is a new, every, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. Uh, and it also brings opportunity to, be consistent and disciplined. And that's something that you, I would imagine you're spending a ton of time teaching your clients. Yep. Yeah. Man, this has been an incredible conversation. Um, you know, Bridget was telling me your story as we were kind of preparing for the podcast and uh, it's just absolutely incredible, man. You've, Thanks, you've lived that. an incredible life. I know you've been through a, a ton of stuff, but just what you've turned it into is absolutely amazing. And that you've, you know, pivoted now and you're, you're giving back and doing the same for other people. It's just incredibly commendable. So thank you again for being on the show. Uh, as we kind of check out of here, do you have any parting words of wisdom for those that are listening? You know, I, I just talked it all about on my last podcast, but uh, everything you want is on the other side of hard. Like, don't forget that. Now, yeah. don't get confused with hard and sucking. Like, not every hard has to suck. There's a lot of hard stuff I go through that, again, if you can find the, the gratitude in it, it's hard. But it doesn't mean I have that to suck. But everything you want is on the other side of hard. And uh, and so, you know, if, if, if you're shooting for a goal or you're shooting for a position at work or you're shooting for these things and, and it seems hard, like, good. Like, you're in the right place. Just keep going. Oh, man, I love it. Brad Jensen, man, incredible interview at the Sober Bodybuilder on Instagram. You must go follow this man. Uh, keep doing what you're doing, brother. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate you all that are continuing to listen to Words of Wisdom. I'll see you guys on the next one. Thanks, Grant. Thank you for listening to this episode of Words of Wisdom. This is a show designed to inspire you to become a better leader so that you can win in all areas of your life. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show. Please rate and review this episode on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget, go off and share your favorite words of wisdom from today's show.